Can everybody? Oh, that's fine. Yeah. You don't need to take my introduction. Oh, you do. Uh, thanks everybody for coming. Uh, uh, enjoy your lunch. Uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, Scott Gelbach, who's an assistant professor uh, in political science at uh, University of Wisconsin uh, Madison. Um, Scott's a real uh, triple threat. Uh, he's got, passed his exams and uh, is well trained in, in economics and in political science. And uh, he's also spent an awful lot of time uh, on the ground in uh, various post-communist countries, uh, most often uh, in Russia. And that's where I usually run into Scott. Actually, I think this is like one of the few times that, that Scott and I are actually getting together on this side of the pond. So uh, uh, I'm really glad to, uh, uh, to invite him here to Columbus. Um, uh, Scott's dissertation won the APSA Political Economy Award for Best Dissertation in 2002, 2003. Um, so uh, then this is part of the dissertation. So um, you know we should feel uh, uh, very honored uh, to have Scott here. So without uh, further ado, uh, Scott Yelba. Thanks, Tim. It's uh, it's great to be here. So this is a piece of my dissertation, and um, since since uh, since I left graduate school, I've been working mostly on other stuff, and uh, I've just recently gotten back to this. So the plan is, at some point over the next year, to get around to turning this into a book. And so uh, I especially appreciate the opportunity to present here because it's a way of getting reacquainted uh, with all of this, and and uh, getting uh, getting reacquainted with a dissertation is sort of like getting reacquainted with an old friend that that. Uh, uh, you haven't seen each other in a while, but even if your friend hasn't changed, you've maybe changed, and you look on the person or the dissertation differently than you did the first time around. So, um, so my thoughts have evolved a bit since uh, since this was written. Um, so, um, with that, let me start. Uh, the title of the talk is Taxability Protection in a State, and, and so I'm going to spend a bit of time at the beginning just defining terms. So, what do I mean by taxability? What do I mean by protection? What do I mean by the state? Uh, let me start with protection. Um, protection in the sense of um, the word as I'm going to use today refers to something that economic agents desire um, which can improve their productivity. So economic agents desire protection from opportunistic behavior by business partners. So uh, we need contract enforcement, for example, in order to keep business partners from taking advantage of each other. Uh, economic agents <coughs> desire protection from competition. So this is the sense of the word protection that's maybe most familiar to many economists. So trade uh, protection, uh, for example, is a sort of protection. Economic agents desire protection from rent-seeking behavior by corrupt uh, bureaucrats. In many parts of the world, it's difficult to get business done if uh, you don't have some sort of protection from bribe-seeking bureaucrats. And then, maybe most obviously, economic agents desire protection from crime. And uh, as something that is useful, economic agents are obviously willing to, to pay for protection. Uh, and one party that potentially they could receive protection from is the state, and, and sort of obviously so, given that protection, to the extent that protection is a collective good, that uh, the state is an obvious provider of protection. Now, in my talk today, I don't want to exclude the possibility that, that protection could be a publicly provided private good. I think there are cases where protection could be pr provided on a very discriminatory basis. 
Uh, this raises the question of why the state would necessarily be in the business of providing protection. I abstract from that question. Uh, uh, in this paper, uh, what's important for this project is just the idea that the state is potentially a provider of protection and that economic agents are willing to pay for protection uh, from the state. Uh, so Douglas North, uh, in his 1981 book, captures the idea that there might be some sort of trade possible between economic agents and the state. When he, uh, in his theory of the state, he says the state trades a group of services which we shall call protection and justice uh, for revenue. Uh, but as uh, those who study uh, contracts know and, and those who study political economy know, the possibility of an efficient contract uh, to which the state is a party is, is questionable. Uh, that there may not be a jointly efficient trade between the state and uh, economic agents, so between the state and the firm, or between the state and uh, a sector <coughs> of the economy. Uh, so most obviously, when the state is a party to a contract, there's no third party to enforce the contract. It's like, what are you going to do, call in the UN to, to enforce a contract to which the party is a state? Um, uh, so uh, this creates a fundamental commitment problem uh, that uh, a contract between private parties in many cases does not. Beyond that, even if a contract could be agreed to in principle, the logic of collective action, action suggests that if, say, protection is a collective good, that agents may not get together uh, to ever negotiate the trade to begin with, with the state. So various reasons we might think that a, a jointly efficient trade between uh, states and and economic agents might not be possible. So the particular theory of uh, uh, state decision-making in this paper is based on the idea that uh, the state provides protection uh, ex ante to the degree that it expects to collect revenues ex post. So there's some time lag between uh, the point in time when the state provides protection and, and uh, the time when production takes place. And in an environment in which the state cannot commit to leaving firms with a portion of their production in uh, the formal sector, in other words, the sector of the economy that can be taxed, uh, firms will have an incentive to hide their revenues in the informal uh, sector, the sector of the economy that can't be taxed. Uh, firms differ in how easy or how difficult this is to do. They differ in their taxability, their costliness of hiding economic activity. And so consequently, firms that are more taxable, that find it more costly to hide their production from the state, are going to hide less. But the state understands this, and so consequently, the state will have an incentive to provide more protection to economic agents which are more taxable. So protection is costly. The state can think of it as a costly investment. And the state is going to make this investment only to the degree that it expects a return on its investment but that return is going to come in the form of revenues that are collected uh, after the fact, and that's going to depend very much on the taxability of economic activity. Okay, so what do I mean by taxability? Uh, what I have in mind is a, a characteristic that's related to various uh, 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 characteristics of the firm or the sector to which a firm belongs. Uh, so at one level, taxability can be affected by uh, ownership structure. Uh, uh, so whether a firm is uh, state-owned or privately owned, for example, may affect the degree to which they find it costly uh, possible to hide revenues from the state. So the state, if the state is a, 
a shareholder in a firm, uh, it may have seats on the board of directors that may give it access to the company's books. That may make it much harder for the managers of the firm to hide revenues uh, than would be the case with a private firm. In certain political economic contexts, there may be a difference between foreign and domestic firms. So foreign firms, for uh, reputational reasons, might not have the same leeway to hide taxes in their foreign operations as do domestic uh, companies in the same uh, environment. Uh, and I'll present some evidence a bit later that that certainly seems to be the case in post-communist <coughs> countries, that foreign firms in post-communist countries, foreign-owned firms, seem to hide less of their revenues from the state than, than domestically-owned companies do. Um, the size of the company might be related to the taxability of their economic activity. So large firms uh, tend to deal less in cash, more in bank transfers. Uh, it's harder for them to hide their production from the state. In general, they're just it's harder for them to stay below the radar screen. That One can imagine that a large manufacturing enterprise is just inevitably going to attract more attention from tax inspectors than will a cafe or a restaurant. That it's just going to be easier for small firms to hide some portion of their production from the state. And then finally, the sector in which uh, a business operates may have something to do with their taxability. So natural resource firms' production tends to go through pipelines, ports, things the state controls. And uh, uh, this uh, presence of a bottleneck gives the state an ability to extract revenues that might not be the case uh, for, say, uh, manufacturing companies. And, and then service firms, which uh, tend to deal uh, uh, in cash, uh, may find it especially easy to, uh, to hide uh, 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 revenues from the state. So when I looked in Moscow, there was a wine shop just down the street from us. And uh, uh, like most businesses in Moscow, you go there and there's a sign on the door saying, we accept Visa and American Express and so on. But you go down there and you try to pay with your credit card. Of course, the credit card machine is always broken. I mean, just, just always broken. And of course, it's always broken because they don't really want to have a record of this transaction having taken place. They'd rather just deal in cash because that means that they can, they can uh, hide uh, revenues from tax inspectors. So obviously that's going to be easier for something like a wine shop than it is for uh, maybe a tire manufacturer. Okay. So let me, yeah. Uh, isn't the size thing potentially uh, U-shaped? In the sense that small firms can hide and big firms can bribe or get rents. Middle-sized firms are sort of screwed because they're going to either way. I think this is actually, I think that's right, I think this is, this is a much misunderstood fact about uh, uh, tax compliance in post-communist countries. That, that the, the point is often made, you look at large firms, so who are the tax, uh, who, uh, uh, which, which firms have the largest uh, tax arrears in Russia? Well, it's inevitably the largest firms, right? But I think the point is that those are the firms that precisely find it hardest to hide revenues. And, and so they're reporting revenues, but then using influence of one sort or another to keep from paying their taxes, whereas the smaller firms just never choose to, uh, to report to begin with. Okay. Um, so let me try to place this into context a little bit. Um, so one can classify maybe existing, so this is a, a theory of policy choice. So what sort of uh, protection is the state going to provide and, and to whom. And so it's useful to think about existing theories of policy choice. And we can maybe divide, uh, at the risk of, of being overly crude, we can maybe divide most existing theories of policy choice into one of two categories. And we can say that uh, there are Downsian models of policy choice uh, in which 
candidates uh, choose to commit to some platform in advance of an election, and uh, the platform that they commit to uh, depends upon the platform that they think the other candidate is going to commit to, but, but also on voter characteristics, so where the median voter is uh, in sort of the most simple, in the, in the Downsing model uh, itself. Uh, in contrast, what we can maybe refer to as Alsonian models of policy choice, uh, the emphasis is much less on electoral competition, much more on models of, of lobbying. So theories of state capture, for example, uh, we could maybe uh, 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 put uh, in this category. Uh, and the idea here is that uh, a lobby and organized interest of some sort in an office holder bargain uh, over policy. Uh, and uh, uh, the assumption, again, is that there's some sort of commitment to power available to the office holder, that the office holder is able to commit to pursuing the policy that they promised to during this negotiation. Uh, and, and so in addition, obviously, uh, as, as uh, Olson taught us, interests have to be organized. There might be uh, reasons to think that interests may not be organized in, in many contexts. This is a model of an environment in which it's uh, impossible uh, at least initially, though I'm going to gradually relax this assumption as the discussion continues, but which initially there's there's no commitment power. So uh, the state finds it impossible to commit to pursuing particular policies. And so uh, political candidates uh, would not be able to commit to pursue uh, to pursuing certain policies after an election. And, uh, uh, and lobbies would, uh, and, and office holders would not be able to commit to keeping up their end of the bargain. Uh, in a negotiation with an organized interest. So uh, it's also perhaps a model in which interests are not organized, uh, though I don't want to push that too hard because I think that, that the basic conclusions of the model will continue to hold even if interests are organized so long as that commitment power is, uh, is lacking. Okay, so with that as background, let me lay out the agenda. I'm going to spend a bit of time on theory. I'm going to walk through in graphical form the model uh, in the paper. And then I'll spend a bit of time on empirics, uh, talking about some of the results uh, from a survey of firms in 25 post-communist countries and what they have to say about the theory. Okay. So um, who do we have up here in this picture? So we've got, uh, everybody recognizes uh, uh, President Putin, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. Uh, he's shaking hands here with Arkady Volsky, uh, the head of the Russian Union of uh, Industrialists and Entrepreneurs. Uh, we've got uh, Vladimir Patanin, uh, one of the Russian oligarchs in the background. This is a picture from earlier this week. It was one of uh, what's become sort of a semi-annual event where the president and the oligarchs get together and, uh, and they talk about the necessity of the state's supporting, protecting private economic activity. Putin was quite explicit in this meeting. He said, the state has to protect private firms uh, no less than it protects state firms. And so the fact that he felt like he had to say this, obviously, <laughs> is evidence that the state is not protecting private firms in the same way that it's protecting state firms. But the deal, Putin said, and said this sort of every six months for the last few years, the deal is that businesses have to pay their taxes. But that seems like a reasonable trade, right? I mean, why, why not just, uh, uh, you know, businesses obviously want uh, uh, protection of their property rights. It seems like they might be willing to pay 
taxes in order to get that. And yet every six months, it's become almost a ritual at this point, every six months, uh, uh, this group and the president get together and they talk about uh, this trade, and, and yet the, the, the deal is never cut. It just never happens. So obviously here we don't have a failure of organization. You've got a, a group of a very small number of Russian uh, industrialists, oligarchs, uh, that uh, are organized. They have uh, 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 a, a lobby which uh, directly uh, affects their interests. They have access to the government. So this is not a failure of organization, yet it is a failure to cut a deal. And underlying this, I would argue, is the failure of the state to commit to leaving the producers with a portion of, of their uh, uh, production, uh, with a portion of their revenues. Um, and, uh, and so conse consequently, the state and, and uh, the economic community are caught in this trap where the state uh, can't commit to leaving producers with a portion of their production. And so the producers hide to the extent that they can, but then the state provides protection only to the extent that it thinks it can get some share of that production yeah, I think that's an excellent point, and, and yeah, so I think that's probably right. That something like tax compliance in particular requires an enforcement mechanism uh, within this group, and it's just not obvious what that enforcement mechanism would look like. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to walk through um, a model that explores the relationship between, I'm just going to call it a firm. Uh, you can think of it as a single firm. You can think of it as uh, a sector. Uh, uh, there doesn't necessarily have to be any organization uh, at all. And, and a state, uh, and I'm going to examine this relationship under various assumptions about the ability of the state to commit to leaving producers with a portion of their production. Okay, so here's, here's just to give you a sense of the structure of the model. So uh, these things happen in, in sequence. So initially the first thing that happens is that the state, and depending upon the version of the model that we're looking at, the state or the ruler can commit to leaving behind a portion of unhidden production. So first we're going to examine the case where the ruler is completely unable to make this commitment. And, and then we're going to ask ourselves, well, what if the state does have commitment power, does that affect the basic conclusions of the model? So uh, following that, uh, then simultaneously the ruler uh, chooses some level of protection uh, and the firm uh, chooses some division of production between the formal and uh, the informal sector, between the hidden and the unhidden sectors. Uh, production then takes place in the hidden and the unhidden sectors. And uh, I'm going to be a little bit vague for just a moment about what production in the informal sector means. So whether that's something that's sort of truly informal, it's, it's uh, I don't know, kiosks on the edge of town where you don't need the protection of the state at all. It's the sort of DeSoto world of, of uh, economic activity uh, completely isolated from the state. Uh, or whether it's simply hiding of revenues, the second set of books, but yet this is all still the same economic activity. And as we'll see, the conclusions depend upon which of those two assumptions we make about the nature of informal activity. Um, and uh, then uh, finally, uh, the ruler then can take any uh, of the unhidden production 
less any that it might have committed to leaving behind uh, while the firm keeps any production that's been hidden. Okay, so that's the basic sequence of events. So um, we want to look first at the case where uh, the state is just completely unable to commit. And, and this is this is the simple story. So uh, the basic idea is that the um, uh, uh, so we've got taxability, the costliness of hiding economic activity on the x-axis here. So uh, the more taxable the firm is, the uh, harder it is for them to hide revenues from the state, obviously the less they're going to choose to hide. But the state understands that, and so the state is going to provide uh, protection only to the, uh, to the degree that it expects uh, production to remain in this formal sector uh, to be able to see some of this uh, production ex post. So, so um, obviously what happens once production has taken place, the state, when the state is unable to commit to leaving producers with any of their production, they just take everything they can. But how much there is to take, how much of the formal sector is there for the state to seize, how much unhidden production there is for the state to seize, is going to depend upon how much has been hidden to begin with. And the more taxable this economic activity, the less the firm will have chosen to hide, therefore the more the state will have to seize and the more incentive the state will have to provide protection ex ante. And so that just leads to the simple monotonic relationship between taxability and protection then, that the more taxable is economic activity, uh, the more protection uh, the state will choose to provide. Yeah? I mean, explicitly when you talk about protection, what you think Um, so when we get to the empirics, I'll, I'll operationalize this. Uh, so just to preview that, uh, the uh, particular questions that, uh, survey questions that we're looking at are the degree to which contracts and property rights are protected, uh, the degree to which firms find it possible to appeal administrative violations to higher authorities, the degree to which they're protected from corruption, that sort of thing. So, so things paying to Right. So, the, I mean, so, so here, here's maybe a way of thinking about it. So, um, everybody knows in Russia that uh, 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 the bureaucratic structure is just not optimal from the point of view of small businesses. Right. I mean, it's just uh, it's, 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 it's it, yeah. It's, it, it's not optimal maybe from the point of view of large businesses either. But it seems to be especially biased against small businesses. And, and that, that shouldn't be surprising. There, there weren't any small businesses under communism uh, uh, to speak of. And so uh, to the extent that this bureaucratic structure was inherited from the communist system, uh, we would expect it to not be uh, especially conducive to, to small enterprise activity. Now, bureaucratic structure is, it's not fixed. It's something that, that uh, it's not constant. It's something that can be changed. But change takes time, it takes effort, it takes political capital, it takes a willingness to address these issues both within agencies and, and uh, uh, within the parliament. And uh, arguably not nearly enough effort has been expended uh, changing the bureaucratic structure in a way that would make uh, small businesses, um, that would make small business more profitable in Russia. Now why might that be the case? And the argument here is that it has something to do with the fact that the state really expects very little return on its investment in small business activity. The small businesses in Russia and throughout the post-communist world, as we'll see, just really don't 
pay their taxes to, to any considerable extent. And, and so uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of selfless behavior, but to the extent that we don't expect selfless behavior on the part of uh, politicians, one might wonder why they would ever choose to go to the effort. I think, actually, just one other comment. Um, for me, one sort of eye-opening um, moment was when I was living in Moscow and I went to Nizhny Novgorod for a conference. And uh, Nizhny is this sort of unusual city in that they really did a lot to try to promote small business activity uh, in uh, the early 1990s. So Bernice Nemtsov was uh, uh, governor of the region, uh, one of the young reformers, and, and so on. And you see it downtown. You see you see a street full of. I mean, now you you see it more and more. But but you saw it early in Nizhny. You, you saw a street full of of small businesses, and, and yet the street itself, the street itself, was just, you know, it was, it was just filled with potholes, it hadn't been paved in, <laughs> in 20 years, the sidewalks were crumbling, and so on. And, uh, and and one could imagine other governors taking a look at Nizhny, I mean, it's, it's, the point being there just obviously wasn't money there to pay for basic public goods uh, that might be a benefit to other constituencies of uh, the government. And so one can imagine other regions looking at Nizhny and saying, What's the point? Why go, go to the point of supporting small businesses if there's nothing that we can get from them at the end of the day? Jim. Taxable is going up to 100%, right? Yeah. And you don't have protection because the predator is paid and you're being robbed blind, right? Yeah. And, and not only that, you wouldn't produce anything since you'd get nothing from your production. So there'd be no sense of producing it because there'd be nothing to protect. And then in the other extreme... Well, so, so, but here's the point. So here's the point, which is that um, uh, protection is something that uh, uh, improves productivity, at least in the formal sector, and possibly the informal sector. Okay? But, yes, to the extent that you don't... And, and it's something separate from protection from taxes. I, I guess we should maybe be explicit about that. I'm not talking about protection from taxes. I'm talking about... You can think of it as public goods if you want, but really I, I don't want to push that point too hard because I think in many cases no, the, these are goods with some degree of... of but, but, but I think regardless of how much you expect the state to seize uh, from uh, your firm after the fact, if your contracts with business partners are enforced, then that means that whatever production you have, at least in the formal sector, is going to be uh, more profitable. But if it's tax, prop, there's no profit. I mean, if the government is taxing it, if taxes are going up, and you're saying exponentially, you're just going up to 100% or 90%, then why would you even make a transaction? Why would you produce anything anyway? Well, and so that's... All the state is doing at that point is protecting its own revenue because it's going to get everything. And it's the same thing with hiding. I don't understand that because, I mean, what what incentive do you have to hide if taxability is zero? You can do everything above board, and the state can't get it anyway. But that's exactly the point. So that's not what your graph says. The graph says hiding is at its most uh, at its extreme when taxability is lower. But that's, there's no incentive. Whereas there's every incentive to hide when taxability is very high. So what is taxability? Taxability. I mean, that's, the whole, that's, the, that's the plan that we okay. operate under. I so so that's that, that you know we want we have terrible you know uh, too many uh, cash transactions. If we you know the, the conservative target be lowering taxes for a reasonable amount, so there'd be more. more taxability is not a tax rate. Taxability is how costly it is to hide production from the state. Okay, so a large firm is more taxable than a small firm. It's easier for the state 
to seize revenues from it's more costly for a large firm to hide revenues from the state than it is for a small firm because a large firm doesn't deal in cash, it's visible, and so on. And so a large firm, we would expect then to hide less of its revenue from the state because it has to do more in order to hide its production. It's more costly for it to do that. It has to set up shell companies offshore, has to do a, it has to hire uh, expensive Moscow accountants, has to do a lot of things in order to hide production from the state that a small firm simply doesn't have to do. A small firm can simply say, sorry, the visa machine is broken, uh, <laughs> accept the payment in, in, in cash, and then just not report it to tax authorities. Well, it also impact really a company to do with revenue or do we get more So the point is, yeah, so, so the more taxable is the firm, the more costly it is for the firm to hide revenues from the state, the less it's going to choose to hide. But then this is happening at the same time that the state is choosing how much protection to provide to the firm in the form of, say, contract protection, con uh, protection of uh, you know, setting up courts, changing uh, the legislative infrastructure to promote small business activity, that sort of thing. And uh, the state, because it expects to be able to seize more ex post from firms that have left more in the formal sector, which are precisely uh, those firms that find it more costly to hide some portion of their production, the state will then choose to provide more protection to those firms. So think of it, at the end of the day, if you expect to be able to tax absolutely nothing from a shop, there's no incentive to provide any sort of goods that might be useful to the shop. Whereas if you expect to be able to seize 50% of the production of a tire manufacturer, then there's going to be an incentive to provide some level of, of uh, goods and services to the tire manufacturer. Yeah. Yeah, there's an incentive then for at least some small businesses to pay taxes because they'll stand out from the herd and be able to, in the long term, to get beneficial favors from the government. Yeah. So this is a stat, right. So we can think of this perhaps in a repeated games context in which over time uh, the state and the firms uh, develop reputations of some sort to, uh, and, 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 and they understand that if they deviate from this behavior, that um, uh, that, that there's going to be a punishment of some sort. Just because there might be some sort of repeated gain equilibrium in the model, though, doesn't necessarily suggest that that's an intuitive equilibrium. And I guess I would argue, in many institutional contexts, uh, uh, the players simply haven't been playing the game long enough in order to coordinate on this different equilibrium. Uh, there's too much bad blood among the players to begin with to, 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 uh, for either of them to trust the other to try to coordinate on that sort of equilibrium. And so the equilibrium with the static model is maybe the best approximation of what the relationship is actually going to be among these players. Now in a second here, I'm going to relax this assumption that neither player has uh, any sort of uh, long-term interest. In particular, I'm going to take a look at, at the state and ask what can happen at the state. So, sort of often we think of, of, say, a state or a government as being a long-lived player and economic agents as being uh, uh, much more short-lived. Uh, so think of you know, managers come and go, uh, but political parties are forever. Uh, and uh, parties have an interest in their reputation, and so they might have some ability 
to commit over time in a way that economic agents do not. And so in a second here, we're going to explore what happens when the state, at least, can commit, but uh, uh, nothing changes about the behavior of the economic agents. Um, but for the moment, this is just a benchmark case. But it's a, a case that I think may have particular relevance to many parts of the world where this commitment power is just fundamentally lacking. So, yeah, Tim. So here we want to think about protection as really more like a private good than for each firm. Yeah. And I want to push you a little bit. I know you, want, you don't want to call it a public good. You want to call it, you know, a private good. And conceptually, we should think about this as a state sitting down and saying, ah, you know, you, it's going to be hard for you to hide revenue. You know, right. uh, I think you're going to have more reactivity in the, in, the, in the formal sector, and I can give you more protection. Is that how we want to think about it? I think we can think about it two ways. We can think about it that way. So we can think about it as, say, a governor who has an enterprise and they understand that the enterprise is able to hide some of its production, uh, uh, some of its revenues in offshore bank accounts. And the governor has to decide how much protection to provide to the enterprise. But we can also think about it perhaps as a governor who has to decide how much political capital to expend creating a more or less conducive legal environment for different sectors of the economy. And to the degree that sectors differ in their taxability, that service firms are just fundamentally less taxable, they find it more costly to hide revenues, then the governor is going to choose to spend less effort promoting that sector. But the yeah. model has only one firm anyway, right? So the distinction is irrelevant. The, the, the distinction is irrelevant in terms of the model. So if we want to think of this as a sector, we can think of it as a sector uh, populated by identical firms. There is no competition. So I think they're supposed to be protected. Uh, right, and, 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 and in particular, uh, the, the model completely abstracts from the idea that there might be externalities to protection. So that's not present in the model at all. Yeah. I hate to believe this point. I apologize for bringing this up in the first yeah. case. But <laughs> as I talked about, it's yeah. way, you don't get an answer now, but we'll come into it later on. Yeah. Which is something you just said just now, this was struck me a little odd. Okay. Except that, you know, thinking about some of these firms, I mean, I appreciate the intuition of you know, larger firms, you know, as a big part of an entire company, you actually have to have Let, let, let me answer now because I think it sort of cuts to the, the, the core of the argument. So the point is that um, IBM in Russia, um, uh, any foreign business doing business in Russia, 
needs some sort of protection from the state. So uh, it's difficult to make investments in Russia without getting major investments in Russia without getting the go-ahead of the Kremlin. It's difficult to make smaller investments without getting the go-ahead of regional leaders. Um, there might be infrastructure uh, improvements that are necessary in order to uh, support the investment. So in uh, Leningradskaya Oblast outside of St. Petersburg, there's a, a new Ford uh, uh, plant. And uh, uh, in order for that plant to work, there had to be a decent road leading from the plant uh, uh, out to the nation's highways, and, and there just wasn't before. And so is the regional government, is the national government, whoever, are they going to make the necessary investments of one sort or another? Um, you know, it could be protecting them against bureaucrats who would otherwise make it difficult for them to do their business. That's very much the same <coughs> protection that foreign investors are often looking for. Are they going to make the necessary investment? And uh, if we follow this logic, the suggestion might be that foreign firms would find it easier to get that sort of protection, that sort of investment, than with domestic firms because they have these reputational reasons for paying their taxes, even when they're in a country like Russia where most people don't pay their taxes. And, and it just seems to be empirically the case that foreign firms in Russia do pay more of their taxes than domestic firms do. And so consequently, they get more attention um, from uh, state officials. Favorable attention. Favorable attention, yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the argument. Yeah. Um, I wanted to clarify the, what do you mean when you talk about protection? Um, you said that you don't want to provide that protection as either collective or pure um, private good. Yeah. Um, but in your graph, uh, for any given uh, level of hiding, there is a different level of protection, mm -hmm. which implies for a firm, like if we are uh, talking about different firms with different uh, levels of flexibility and hiding, there will be different levels of protection uh, chosen at stake. In your case, in the example you gave by road, uh, by the road uh, in that particular community, um, I don't see how the state can choose different level of protection for either large um, um, international company or a small business sitting uh, alongside of the road. I don't see how that discrimination can occur in a case of pure public good. I can think of pure uh, private Yeah. Um, this puzzled me for a long time. And, and then at some point I realized that there's a lot in between pure private goods and pure public goods. Um, that there are collective goods that are a benefit to some group of individuals but not others, um, to some sectors and not others. And so this is a model. So the model only works to the extent that you think that uh, it only makes sense. It's only coherent to the extent that we uh, expect some level of discrimination uh, to be possible. Um, and so uh, whether we're talking about a firm, a sector, sort of that depends on uh, where we think that level of discrimination is possible. If it's, if it's possible on an individual firm basis, then we can think about the model in, in those terms. If it's possible only on a sectoral basis, it's, it's certainly the case for like, you know, changing the legislation to favor small business activity. Then the way to think about this is that there's a sector populated by firms of a particular level of taxability and what sort of protection is going to uh, be extended to that sector. Let me, let me change the order that, that, that I was going to talk about things a little bit because what I'd like to do 
rather than sort of delving further into the model in dealing with the case where the state can commit, if we have time, let's come back to that. But let me jump ahead to some of the empirical results, because I think that may put a little bit more flesh on, on some of the basic argument here. And the empirical results actually are most supportive of this version of the model, where it's just a simple, static environment where uh, nobody can commit. And, um, um, and, and so I'm sort of stealing the punchline a little bit, because you, know, you might be interested in what are the conclusions of the model where the state has some commitment power, then we could show that, well, the data are most supportive of the snow commitment model. But let's let's jump ahead and take a look at, at some of the data because I think they are they are interesting. Okay. So um, so the the data the empirical investigation is from um, post communist Europe, uh, which I would argue is is uh, uh, a, a good environment to study these issues. So. First of all, just the challenge of collecting revenues is significant in post-communist countries, that there are large differences in taxability across different sectors of the economy or across different firms, large differences in the ability of actors to hide revenues from the state that may not be the case so much as in, say, uh, a country like the U.S. Uh, and, and, and this is, this is uh, very much a legacy of the communist system, that the communist system revenues, taxes really didn't exist in a conventional sense, that everything belonged to the state and, and, and what was collected uh, by the state and not reinvested in firms was, was, was an accounting uh, transaction uh, as much as anything. And so with privatization, with liberalization, came the need to establish uh, 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 tax systems that could tax private uh, entities. And uh, countries have been more or less successful in doing that, but, but more to the point, within a given country, there's been more or less success at establishing uh, uh, systems dealing with different parts of the economy. And that has a lot to do with the underlying industrial structure. But a country like Poland, for example, that didn't have a natural resource sector, uh, Poland could establish a tax system that was fairly broad-based, uh, that uh, was based on income taxes to a considerable extent, and there was a strong incentive to do so. Russia, in contrast, where you have this, this large, very taxable natural resource sector, could just continue to, to pump uh, uh, or, or, or to suck revenues out of, out of a very small number of firms and never invest in, in learning how to tax other sorts of entities. And, and so to this day, the natural resource sector in Russia accounts for an overwhelming proportion of uh, revenues. So at the federal level, this is certainly true. It's also true at the local level. There was, in the context of a different project, there was a, a region that a co-author of mine in Moscow uh, and I looked at, uh, Krasnoyarsk, which is this large region in Siberia. Um, uh, it's like roughly the size of the U.S. east of the Mississippi, population of, I don't know, five million or something. Um, dominated by two industrial enterprises, two metals um, uh, enterprises, which together account for something like 70% of all taxes collected by the regional government. So just two very taxable enterprises and, and then sort of everybody else. So in addition to that, one thing that's, that's uh, characteristic of post-communist countries is that these are states that arguably have very little ability to commit. So in particular, the sort of uh, commitment mechanisms that exist in many other parts of the world. So reputational mechanisms and sort of in political science literature, uh, there's this argument that 
parties are long-lived and have an interest in investing in their reputations, and this gives this gives state actors an ability to commit uh, to pursuing particular policies uh, that in many parts of the post-communist world just does not exist. The, the parties and much of the parties, with the exception of one party in particular, uh, in, in all the post-communist world are, are, are young um, and, uh, and not necessarily stable. But in, in many post-communist countries, there's this sort of parties come and go, uh, so very little opportunity to, to build reputations. Uh, plus, just the very nature of the fact that these are states that, that inherited large obligations to their populations in the sense of services that had traditionally been provided and that saw this large revenue collapse in the early 1990s, that may in and of itself create significant commitment problems and that the state can never commit to leaving producers with a portion of their production if there's always this pressure to, to pay back wages and so on. Um, so that means they're unpredictable and they're capricious effectively. Yeah, and the survey evidence very much suggests that that's the case. That it doesn't matter sort of what the tax rate is. Everything boils down to, everything comes down to uh, the negotiation between the tax inspector. And it's capricious, effectively. And it's capricious, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, entrepreneurs often, sort of business people in, in Russia often complain about the fact that if you add up all of the taxes that, that uh, they're, they're they're technically liable for it. And this has changed a little bit in recent years, but the argument was sometimes made that they, they totaled it more than 100%. So obviously at that point, it just comes down to what the tax inspector chooses to collect. Um, and then finally, to the degree that we think that this is a model about actors with no ability to organize, so again, I, I think the model extends beyond that. One legacy of communism is that there's been very poor organization of interests uh, throughout the post-communist world. So. Uh, so, what are the data? This is data from a. These are data from a, a survey done in 25 post-communist countries in 1999 by the World Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Uh, the Business and Environment and Enterprise Performance Survey. Uh, 4,100 firms uh, were surveyed, and uh, for our purposes, the the uh, key virtue of the survey is that the survey contained questions about revenue hiding and about various measures of what we what we might call state protection. Um, so let me introduce the revenue hiding measure. So firms were just asked uh, what proportion of revenues uh, uh, do you believe that firms in your area of activity uh, typically report to tax authorities? Okay, so two things to say about this. First is in your area of activity sort of you know, it's meant to elicit responses about their particular firm, and, and I think respondents typically understand that that's the case. And then the second thing to say is that you might think that everybody would just say that, that well, we report everything. We don't hide anything from the state. But, in fact, you just look at the data, and, and people people seem to be sort of brutally honest. That, uh, only a third of respondents say that they don't hide anything from tax authorities. Uh, you know, the, the vast majority of firms say they, they hide something. Um, 7% uh, said they hide between 80 and 100% uh, of their revenues from tax authorities. A uh, lot of variation uh, in the responses. Um, and it's variation that makes, um, it's variation that's, just, that's um, systematic. That uh, if you look at what firms say they hide, or the firms like theirs hide from revenue uh, from tax authorities, you see that it, it correlates in, in sort of obvious ways with firm characteristics that we might expect to be 
associated with the taxability of the firm or, or the, the, the difficulty, the, the, the costliness of the firm of hiding revenues from the state. So, um, so these are all predicted uh, values that I'm going to present up here. So this is controlling for uh, a lot of stuff. Um, so uh, what we see, for example, is that um, uh, foreign firms say that they typically hide uh, less than domestic firms do. So that's consistent with, with some of the arguments earlier. Um, there are differences across sector. That natural resource firms say that they hide less than do manufacturing firms, say they hide less than do service firms. Uh, differences by size, uh, the bigger the firm, the less they say they hide uh, from tax authorities. So um, at some sort of uh, 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 level, it certainly appears that revenue hiding is correlated with, with, with taxability or with firm characteristics that we might think are associated with the taxability of economic activity. So then we might be interested in, in given, given the, the, the theoretical argument, and whether revenue hiding is associated with the degree of protection that firms receive from the state. And um, uh, so the basic model, again, suggests that we'll see this uh, negative correlation between revenue hiding and protection, that more uh, taxable uh, uh, firms will tend to hide less, and because the state understands this, it will consequently extend more protection to those firms. Uh, so I've got slides for just a few of the measures of protection here. There, there are a few more in the paper. Um, so one, one measure of protection is just the, the uh, degree to which uh, contracts are enforced. So this was a, uh, the question read, um, uh, 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 let, me, let me just read you the question. So the question read, to what degree do you agree with the statement? I am confident the legal system will uphold my contract and property rights in business disputes. So key here, this is not, this, you know, this is disputes among businesses. Um, contract enforcement, obviously, an important sort of protection for, for businesses. Um, uh, firms uh, could strongly disagree, disagree in most cases, tend to disagree, and so on. So this is just the probability uh, the predicted probability that firms would tend to agree with the statement, and we see that the probability is declining in the percent of revenues hidden. Um, so, give you a sense of the scale here. So, 25% um, of revenues hidden. So that's that's uh, that's about the the mean response uh, to this question, and so. Uh, and then this uh, one standard deviation is about 25%. So, so we're moving two standard deviations as we move from no revenue hiding to 50% of revenues hidden. And we see a decline in the probability that uh, firms would say that their contracts are enforced of uh, three, seven, eight percentage points, something like that. That's so low. That's their estimate, right? It's not an actual. This is survey, Yeah, so, 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 so you would think if you were can only hide zero, you would get like 80%. I mean, I would have thought, you know, somewhere that you, you believe that probably your contract being forced to be like 80%, and if you had 50, it would be only like 50%, 25%. I mean, they're usually... I'm, 
I mean, it's it's a it's a paper not about explaining the mean so much as it is about explaining the variance. I, I guess I'm a little surprised, perhaps, that that the the mean probability is as high as it is. But I don't know. Tim, you may have. Actually, I was going to say usually uh, I get the opposite response when I say uh, you know about two thirds or seventy percent of firms in Russia say that they could use the courts to uh, protect their property rights in a business dispute. Most people say, oh, come on. You know, that's pretty true. Yeah. You know, that, that number must be must way inflated. So these things, you know, I mean, you ask them, can you use the courts in a dispute with the state? You know, it's only like 40%. So, you know, and I think these numbers, you know, I think even the states, if you ask people, actually, we asked this question in Columbus among small businesses. <laughs> and only about 80% of the people that are doing use the courts to protect their rights as businesses. Okay. Um, another sort of protection that firms might have is, is protection from corrupt bureaucrats, so the ability to complain if there's been a violation uh, of some sort by some lower level bureaucrats. So somebody, a fire inspector comes to you and uh, uh, sort of New Year's, which is the big holiday in Russia, is just around the corner. Uh, anecdotally, at least, it seems to be the case that uh, inspections are much more frequent uh, in December because people are trying to collect money for New Year's gifts. Um, <laughs> so to what extent can you uh, uh, complain to somebody higher up uh, the ladder if somebody comes to you and, and does something like this? So this is just the probability that firms say um, that they have the opportunity to appeal uh, administrative violations. And uh, uh, on average, something, well, I say on average, but we see that the, the probability again is declining in the degree to which firms hide revenues from the state. So the, the more firms hide the revenues from the state, the lower the probability that they uh, say that they have this opportunity to, to complain when uh, when somebody uh, when state officials do do something wrong. Okay, and then finally, we might think that. Uh, or th this is sort of along the same lines so of protection from corrupt uh, bureaucrats. So uh, to what degree do firms have to pay bribes in order to get business done? So uh, another question on the survey that you might think nobody would be willing to answer honestly uh, was what proportion of your revenues do you typically pay in bribes to um, um, government officials to get things done? And uh, we see that the proportion of revenues paid in bribes is increasing the level, level of revenue hiding. So there's less protection from corrupt bureaucrats uh, the more uh, uh, the firms hide from the state. Now, one question might be, getting back to the question we had earlier, was are firms merely paying bribes to avoid paying taxes? And so one of the nice things about the survey is that after asking firms how much of the revenues they pay in bribes to government officials, uh, uh, the respondents are then asked what particular they're paying bribes for, who are they paying bribes to, so how much of it is it going to fire inspectors, to sanitary inspectors, to tax officials, and so on. So I have another measure of, of bribes where I just subtracted out uh, bribes paid to anybody that had any sort of tax authority, so customs officials, uh, uh, tax officials, and so on, just to be sure that, that uh, the relationship that we were seeing here was not just that firms are paying bribes so that they can hide more, 
and you see the same basic relationship. Yep. To get a sense of scale, what percent of the revenues are given in taxes? Um, what percentage? I can tell you what what percent uh, are <laughs> reported. That's that's what we. Sure. Yeah. But um, what, what's the tax rate, or what's what's, what's the yeah. tax rate times times the proportion not hidden was times the proportion of, paid? Was oh. there a question on the survey that said what proportion of your revenues are given in There was not. I, I don't believe that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a hard one. Yeah. I've talked about asking such a question, and uh, it's hard even to calculate that given how complex. Yeah. Can you would ballpark the actual figure? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Which, 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 yeah, I mean, so, so which shell corporation are you talking about? Yeah, you like the first question here? <laughs> 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 Okay, so rather, we're sort of running short on time, so rather than going through the rest of the model dealing with different uh, uh, different levels of commitment and power on the part of the state, I just invite you to take a look at the paper if you wanna, if you wanna um, uh, read through those arguments. Um, let me conclude um, uh, by maybe talking a little bit about um, where what the rest of my dissertation was about, basically. So, um, so this is a model of, of it's a model of a unitary revenue maximizing state and uh, and a firm or a sector. Um, it's not unique among political economy models in assuming that the state is a unitary revenue maximizing actor. There's a long tradition of, of such models in the literature. And there are sort of various reasons to think that that might not be a bad first cut. That, um, for one thing, many state officials are in this for the money, uh, and that's especially so in certain parts of the world. Uh, but secondly, revenues are obviously uh, important for electoral reasons, that, that tax revenues can be used to pay for things that voters want, and, and, uh, and that might suggest another reason why state officials are interested in revenues. However, if we take that second argument, we might be interested in, in whether or not the basic logic extends to an environment in which you have a democratically elected politician as opposed to just a running for re-election as opposed to just a revenue maximizing actor. And so uh, another piece of the, of the dissertation uh, models explicitly an incumbent politician running for re-election uh, who, it, so it's a career concerns model for anybody who knows this class of models. So career concerns model, the basic idea is that you you want to convince somebody of your confidence and you have an incentive to exert effort in order to appear uh, more confident. And, and then there's there's a, a difference in assumptions about um, who has what information that distinguishes career concerns models from single-end models. Um, so this is a model in which a, a democratically uh, elected politician is trying to convince uh, voters of his confidence in doing things that voters like. Uh, and in particular, trying to convince uh, voters of his confidence in uh, producing public goods uh, or providing redistributive transfers paid for with tax revenues. And so uh, we lose some of the subtleties of, the, of the, this model uh, in terms of um, 
um, sort of different shades of commitment power, but we see the same basic argument hold up in this very different model of a democratically elected politician. And, and the basic logic is that when a uh, when a politician has is interested in, in uh, convincing voters that he's competent in producing things that voters like, that the most efficient way to do that is to raise taxes uh, from uh, uh, sectors that are uh, the easiest to tax, and consequently there will be an incentive to provide more protection or to invest more in those sectors in order to uh, extract more tax revenues, in order to provide more things that voters like. Okay. And then the, the last piece of this says, um, let's just take as given the argument that state officials have an incentive uh, to allocate uh, uh, protection on the basis of taxability, uh, but then let's drop the assumption that there are really just two sectors of the economy, that there's this, this taxable uh, sector and then this completely untaxable sector. And instead, let's explore the possibility that there may be sectors of the economy which are both taxable, but which differ in their taxability. And that factors of production, labor and capital, are then mobile across sectors. Uh, and uh, the basic argument here is that factor mobility can exaggerate the effect of differences in taxability. That, that uh, it, it's one of these models where you have multiple equilibria, and so the state is going to provide uh, protection to sectors that are important in terms of tax revenues, uh, but then factors of production, labor and capital, in turn, are going to locate in sectors uh, which uh, receive more protection from the state. Uh, and, and this suggests the, uh, the possibility that you may have, you sort of think about this as like you know, old economy, new economy, that you may have countries where you have both factors of production and state protection allocated around old economic activity and, and uh, 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 traditional economic activity or, or old state manufacturing firms in the context of post-communist countries, uh, and uh, economies where protection and factor allocation are concentrated in uh, a sector of uh, new, uh, more productive economic activity. And so then, with sort of any of these models with multiple equilibria, then the question is, how do you choose among equilibria? And I think in the context of, of post-communist Europe, there's a particular way that we might think about a model like this, which is that privatization can be thought of, uh, privatization which was carried out in, in pretty much all post-communist countries uh, to one degree or another as, uh, as an exogenous shock in, in resource allocation. So it was something that was carried out by reformers in the early 90s who maybe had different incentives than the state actors who followed them. And the question then is, was the shock big enough in order to uh, tip the state into supporting new private economic activity as opposed to old state or formerly state economic activity? And the argument is, and, and you, sort of, you read the theoretical literature on privatization from the early 1990s, people like uh, Friedman Rapuczynski and, and Schleifer and Vishny and, and, and Boyko, and, and, and you very much sort of see this argument that privatization has to be massive in order to affect this shift, that there's got to be a big enough shock in order for state actors to have an incentive to uh, support new as opposed to old economic activity. So the argument here is that how big the shock has to be depends upon 
the relative differences in taxability of the old and the new sectors, that where the differences are great, as they are, say, in, in Russia, uh, where the old sector, the old natural resource sector, is very taxable, and the new private sector is just not that taxable at all, that the shock may not be big enough in order to convince the state to invest in new economic activity and consequently private actors to locate uh, in new firms. And, and so maybe what we're seeing uh, in, in countries like Russia is, is the sort of slip back into the old equilibrium where, uh, and I remember Tim and I had this conversation at, at APSA, that there's just sort of this, there was attention uh, paid to small businesses in, in the early Putin years, but sort of increasingly it just seems to be the case, this, sort of this recognition that it's just not worth the effort. Um, let's just concentrate our energy where we know we can get a return, and, and that's the old rich natural resource Okay, so let me just stop with a formal presentation there and, and, and take questions. So, yeah. Um, you, you told us this flexibility uh, story. Um, how is it different from picking the winners? Um, I was, uh, I mean, um, you're saying that uh, the ones, uh, the firms uh, which are more, uh, which are larger, uh, tend to be more taxable. Um, at the same time, I, I can envision that the government is really concerned about the big fish. Uh, and the way you operationalize uh, protection is protection against competitors and uh, protection against uh, predatory activity on the uh, part of state bureaucrats. So if, uh, if uh, the government is picking the winners, and this is just for you know the purpose of development, uh, economic growth, whatever the purpose the government tries to have in this effect. Um, if the government is picking the uh, big fish and letting the big fish prey on all the uh, small ones, um, how is it? I mean, how is it different from yesterday? What would be your reaction? I, I, I guess my reaction might be that, that that would be an argument that might make more sense in, in, in I don't know in Columbus than in Moscow. That that the um, the the big fish uh, in the post-communist world, by and large, are not the winners, <laughs> or at least well, you know, they, they were winners in a different game. Uh, they're not the most productive enterprises, and there's a lot of empirical evidence to suggest that this is the case. It's, it's, the, it's the small enterprises, it's the service enterprises that are by far the most productive. Uh, uh, and yet, despite that, they're not somehow getting the favorable attention of the states. And, yeah. yeah. I, I understand what you're doing, it makes sense. What about job performance? for the government in Russia. I mean, like, the service sector is important. It's an important sector, right? I mean, yeah. we all like services, um, maybe even more than, you know, natural resources at some mm -hmm. point. Like, what, what's it going to say? Well, they're hard to tax, therefore, won't get the protection, therefore, they're going to die, right? I mean, or they're, gonna, they're not going to... Now, you just said, though, that the service sectors are the most productive. So what's the relationship, I guess, between what you're calling protect, protection and the health of the sector? Because if the health sector is bad, then the government will go down. I mean, if I'm an elected official, I want my constituents happy. That's just part of, you know. And that's just one of the five. Okay, you may not be able to tax the revenue of the firm as well in some of these, these um, industries. But you can tax their employees, right? You can tax. There are other ways to tax them. And, and if, if they're going if to put people to work, then, then you know, 
It just seems, it, it, I know it's a stylized model, but it just seems to me if I'm an elected official, I'm not going to let the service sector die because it's hard to tax that revenue, so who cares? Okay. Um, first question, what's the relationship between productivity and, and the health of the sector? Um, so in part, the reason that the small business sector in Russia, countries like Russia, looks so productive is because it's so small, and it's only the sort of cream of the crop that uh, the entrepreneurs with the, the best skills and the best ideas and so on that have been able to overcome the substantial obstacles uh, 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 to establishing their business that have been able to, to be successful in any way. So if you take a look at, at just the percentage of the economy, and this is actually sort of a harder thing to measure than you might think, and that there aren't consistent measures across countries, but if you just look at the percentage of the economy uh, of GDP accounted for by small enterprises uh, in the former Soviet Union. Throughout the post-communist world, it's, it's, it's lower than uh, you would expect given these countries' level of economic development. It's especially low in the countries of the former Soviet Union. Um, the second question, there are different ways of taxing enterprises uh, or different ways of raising tax revenues. It's not just sort of corporate profit taxes and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that um, you might think, though, that the ability to hide revenues from the state is going to be um, associated with the ability to hide expenses um, uh, of the firm. And, and so if it's the firm colluding with employees, say, uh, to hide uh, income, to hide the employee's income so that not so much uh, withholding has to be paid to the government, then uh, it seems like that could just as easily be associated with some of these characteristics like like size and, and, and sector and so on. So, yeah, Tim. I mean, I'm trying to put this in the context. I mean, the implications of this are very different from a predatory state model right? because you have firms that are large, um, uh, uh, that also get services from the state. Yeah. It's not just that, that it's not just that they're being taxed. Um, now, it's, now it's, it's different from a capture model as well, right? Because the, the capture model would be no, it's it's the it's the small or it's the large firms that get benefits from the state, but it's the other firms mm -hmm. uh, that pay most of the revenue, right? If you mm -hmm. capture the state, that's ideally what you'd like. You can get the benefits without paying for it. Yeah. So I mean, if you frame it in that way, you know, I mean, this is like a more nuanced model than the predatory state model, yeah. and it has very different implications from the capture model, which is, you know, about a lot of purchase in the region. Yeah. So I mean, is that fair kind of way to frame this, or no? Yeah, yeah. And I think it, it sort of it, it gets to the question of um, does more protection necessarily imply uh, a more profitable um, uh, enterprise, given that protection is associated with uh, uh, with uh, tax extraction by the state. And it's not necessarily clear which way that cuts, that, that a firm uh, may want relatively less protection uh, uh, at, uh, and, and uh, relatively less taxes paid to the state. So the, the, the answer to that question depends in part on, on what we think about the informal sector. So um, let me just... Uh, how do we? Um, I can't remember. I want to make that a, a, a slide. Pull that up. So, um, so here's some. Um, 
So we've got these two cases. We can think of it as, as the DeSoto case. So the informal sector is, uh, is I don't know, setting up kiosks on the edge counter or something. So, so Yukos, uh, Russian oil major, if it uh, expects the state to seize everything from it, it's just going to invest uh, its capital in um, uh, uh, production of uh, pirashki to be sold at metro stations on the outskirts of Moscow or something, right? Maybe not a fair assumption, but if we assume that, if we assume that then there's, um, there's uh, any reasonable level of productivity in the, in the informal sector, then what we see is that the firm profit is actually declining with the firm's taxability. Um, that uh, even though the, uh, and, and the idea here is that the firm, uh, that protection isn't providing any valuable good to the firm at all. Everything in the formal sector uh, is taxed away and so that's useless as far as the firm is concerned. The informal sector doesn't benefit from protection at all. Uh, and so the more taxable the firm is, the less it can locate in this informal sector and the less its total profit. Total surplus, nonetheless, has this, this, this U-shaped relationship. And the point here is that even though the firm isn't getting any of this, um, any of this, uh, uh, any profit from production in the formal sector. Somebody is, the state is, and so as long as we include the state in the calculation of total surplus, that uh, that, uh, that that begins to turn up at some point. But, but yet, total surplus is everywhere less than the efficient level of surplus, and the, and the point is that we've got two efficiency losses here. We've got uh, a loss from hiding, which is costly, and we have a loss in that the state isn't providing the efficient level of, of protection. Um, so then contrast that with the case where UCOS, where hiding means not allocating capital to, to uh, activities that are completely unrelated, that, that don't benefit in any way from state production. The hiding simply means maintaining a second set of books. Uh, and, and so protection in this sense can benefit informal activity as well as formal activity. So if the state is providing export promotion to oil companies, for example, that uh, uh, the firm is going to benefit from that uh, in terms of the revenue that it doesn't report to tax authorities, that that's going to continue to, uh, that that's still going to be some benefit. And what we see here is that from the firm's point of view, there, well, first of all, we see the total surplus, again, is less than the efficient level uh, of surplus. But that from the firm's point of view, there's an optimal level of taxability. That when taxability is very low, then the state doesn't have a sufficient incentive to provide protection, and so the firm's uh, 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 production uh, is, is, is too low. Whereas when taxability is very high, even though the state is providing a lot of the sorts of goods and services that firms want, it's taking all of it. Uh, because the firm finds it too costly to hide their revenues, and so the firm's profits are low again. Whereas in the middle, there's some balance between providing the state with the optimal level of incentives and leaving the firm uh, with uh, enough that it uh, 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 is able to uh, retain some of its profits. Okay. That looks like the closing bell. Yeah. And you, you, you I'll be around. I'll let you yeah. Do you want to pursue that? Sure, they should be. But we can keep going uh, if you want informally, but first let's uh, liberate my speaker formally, but informally. Uh, I can keep on. Uh,
Aren't your data showing basically the state is committing? In other words, predictably, if you pay taxes, you get more protection. Um, no. Well, if the state commits, then um, you might expect no revenue. So long as the state can commit to leaving producers with whatever they would get. But the more you hide, the less likely you are to be so there, that implies that the state is responsive to your degree of fighting. Unless there's some other cause of the That's right. It's responsive, but, but, but it's not, so it's not, but it's not responding to a commitment. It's just simply doing the optimal thing. But it's predictable. It's predictable. That doesn't... That necessarily I don't understand what that commitment Okay, so, yeah, so, so I, I didn't really get to that portion, but uh, to the commitment case. The commitment in the context of this model is committing to leaving producers with a portion of their production from, uh, uh, with a portion of whatever they've chosen. So, um, and, and, and Putin commits to the oligarchs that uh, he's not going to take whatever they haven't hidden in uh, offshore. The taxability is what I said, just the rate of you know, yeah. revenue. No, the so, but, rate but, but the taxability is how costly is a tied revenue interval. Commitment is... But then your hiding is tautological, right? Because then, of course, by definition, if taxability is, is, the, is defined as the difficulty of hiding, then low taxability is going to show up with high hiding, and high taxability is going to show up with But only low. when the state can commit. So when the state can commit, then you get, it depends on the case that we're looking at. So it depends on what we think about. But, but in both cases, if the state can commit to leading firms with enough of their, with as much of their uh, revenue that they would have gotten from hiding, then the firms will choose not to hide. But, but it effectively is doing that, isn't it? It may not be true. It, it, because uh, if you don't hide, you tend to get more services. I, that is, you get more profit in some sense. So you're better off if you're that way. Yeah. So there's this, the, sort of the key here is the sequencing. So um, the point is that the revenues are seized at a different point in time from when the protection is provided. So what commitment means is ex ante saying, we're going to leave you with some of what you've left in the formal sector ex post. But isn't that the rate of taxation? Aren't they committing to a rate? I mean, if you told me I'm going to leave you some, I'd say, okay, 2% of what I you I want to know what are you going to leave me, That's right? right? So the, so so the model, the part of the model I didn't get to yeah. sort of walks through yeah. different assumptions about what that commitment means. Does it mean commitment to say just a lump sum tax that, that we're going to um, uh, only impose a, a certain tax that's going to leave you with precisely what you would have gotten had you chosen to, to hide optimally, or does it mean committing to an inefficient tax like a proportional tax uh, on income? So we're going to commit to never raising the tax revenue above 13%, which is the but does it matter in your individual income tax rate in Russia, and 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 never asking for more than 13%. But doesn't it matter what you're going to give me for that commitment? Like commitment to me would be both ends of that. Like you're you're committing to the bargain. You're committing. You'll take 25% of my revenue, but you'll give me this much protection. I want to know on the dotted line. A commitment to me is not just that you're not going to rob me blind. I, you know, commitment means what am I getting? It's an exchange, right? So, yeah. It's a modernization of the, of the tax code. Right. I mean, how do you professionalize okay, but, commitment? But, but, yeah. 
Um, I guess that's the question. That's what he just said. He said commitment is just the government saying that we won't rob, we won't take everything, we'll leave some of what you produce for yourself. Thank you. But it takes the form usually of the tax for you. That's precisely the sort of commitment that's missing in many countries. So so in Russia, the, 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 the corporate profit tax rate was substantially reduced, and, and the hope was that this would cause a lot of firms to come out of the shadows um, and report more of their economic activity. Like the Lafrica. Like the Lafrica. It yeah. hasn't had that response it hasn't had as much of that response yeah. as authorities expected. And and the reason seems to be that firms simply don't expect the state to keep their promise. They think that, so, okay, so we'll, we'll report our revenues today, but then tomorrow they'll crank the tax rate. Yeah. So how, how does it follow from that, that by promising a raise in the tax rate, yeah. you actually, firms are going to believe you? Um, that by promising to raise the tax rate? Yeah, that's what you said with your, your career model. If you want to be elected, you have to promise to raise the taxes. Oh no! So, so, in the in the in the in the career concerns model, there's no. I mean, that's also a model without commitment. But rather, the state is just taking action. The politicians just taking actions to try to appear more confident. So, and you said by by promising a, a, a hike, a tax hike, you get elected. Is that not by promise? No. No. That that. So, the state wants to demonstrate its confidence in yeah. producing things that voters like. Um, uh, uh, to do that, it has to raise taxes. How can it most efficiently go about demonstrating its competence in raising taxes and paying for public goods and transfers? It can most efficiently do that by supporting the sector that's most taxable. Oh, I see. That's quite different from what I understood. The service sector, we need services in this society, right? Mm -hmm. People want services. And it may be good for our economic growth. If I'm a state, I'm, I'm, I want to maximize revenue. I want to, I'm looking at which sectors are most dynamic. Maximizing revenue is not the same thing. But that's the, that's the point. Is that maximizing revenue is not necessarily the same thing as maximizing mm -hmm. economic That's right. Mm -hmm. But in the end, if I have a thriving economy, I will get revenue. In the end. In the end, we're all dead. I know, but, but the point is, if I'm being elected, and let's say there's no services in my district, and they all know it's because I don't think they're worthwhile, because I can't tax them and make revenue. Yeah. But I'm not, at the politics, I don't care about the state's maximum. I care about getting elected, and I care about what my constituents are. I might even be a good guy. And I might be a good guy. I want people to be happy and have a good standard of living. You have to pay your bureaucrats. This, this seems like the politics These people have seen that. <laughs> How do you pay your tax, your IRS people? You have to pay them. And the way you do it, you allow them to pay on the small ones. <coughs> you know, you know that you won't be able to tax uh, the small businesses anyways. So there's no revenue for you. You allow, you basically feed your bureaucrats uh, out of the revenues producing, uh, producing the service sector. So you will kind of, you know. But, 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 but see, I can feed. Why can I feed the bureaucracy off these industries that are easy to tax, mm -hmm. but but then give protection to everyone? Like, why must I be fair? Oh, in other words, why do I get protection to the ones that I tax? Why can't I just give protections to? Two? Everybody. Scott, do you have a disc? It costs money to put that. It costs money to put that. Right, I understand. I just take it from the natural resources. And I show good faith to the service sector, and I protect them. And you figure, if you show good faith to them, they may say, well, look, it's in my interest to be a good citizen. You know, and to pay my taxes. And then my constituents. How would that play in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> well, I think that the model maybe has something to say about the natural resource. There's sort of different versions of the resource first argument. One version of this argument is that natural resource rich countries have such 
uh, perverted political economy precisely because it's so easy to raise revenue from the natural resources. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, that's the government is saying. It's not the winners in our society. The ones I can tell you, the ones I'm going to give protection to, 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 the 